This is the lowest turnout in history in the legislative council election, and the message is clear. Uh, Hong Kong people do not agree with the election overhaul, do not agree with the heavy-handed um, suppression in Hong Kong, and they are boycotting the election in order to make a point that the current legislature has no legitimacy. My name is Andrew, and welcome to The Aftermath. Last month, Hong Kong's Legislative Council election had a lower voter turnout than any other election of its kind. How do the Hong Kong people feel about the changes in their city's electoral system? And how much of the present situation can be traced back to the draconian national security law that was passed in 2019? To make sense of this, I am joined by Vivian Wong, a China correspondent for the New York Times. We discuss the elections last month, many of the causes leading up to it, and what it might mean for the future. Hope you enjoy. Uh, Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the, the time to come on to the McGill International Review podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, a lot of the the happenstances that have been unfortunately occurring in Hong Kong over the past two and a half years can be linked to the national security bill that was proposed back in 2019. So would you you mind explaining that whole situation to the audience and the immediate response that it garnered? Sure. So the national security law was enacted by the central Chinese government for Hong Kong in June of 2020. And it was most immediately a response to the months and months of huge pro-democracy protests that had taken over Hong Kong throughout 2019. And the security law was a big deal for a number of reasons. Uh, The biggest being that, as I said, it was enacted by the central Chinese government in Beijing and not by the Hong Kong government, because under One Country, Two Systems, which is the agreement that China and Britain made when Hong Kong returned to Chinese control in 1997, Hong Kong was supposed to have a high degree of autonomy, which basically meant that Beijing was supposed to largely leave Hong Kong to govern itself. And so the fact that Beijing was now coming in and saying, actually, we're going to impose a law on Hong Kong. We're going to bypass the Hong Kong government entirely, really signaled to a lot of people that Beijing was reneging on that promise and essentially moving to exert far tighter control on Hong Kong decades before it had said that it would. Um, And then the second part of the law that was really concerning was, of course, the law itself, which is extremely sweeping extremely general. It defines four general crimes or offenses, such as um, trying to subvert the government or colluding with foreign forces, but it's really not clear about what that means. And in the year and a half since that law was enacted, we've seen that that vagueness means that the government can really use it to prosecute anything it doesn't like. So we've seen the prosecution of speech crimes. Um, We've seen the government use the law to say, students shouldn't be singing X songs in school. Um, So so there really appears to be no limit on how the government can interpret the law to silence critics. So it's like deliberate vagueness to give yourself more more leeway to 
create the restrictions that you want. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the, the both the Hong Kong and the Chinese governments have said, oh, you know, we still have an independent judiciary here in Hong Kong, the courts are interpreting the law, so everything is still all right and proper. But what they don't say is that because the law is so sweeping, there really is plenty of room for interpretation. And so you can still put this law through what many might still consider to be a largely independent judiciary, but without real definitions and real clarity about what the law is supposed to do and not supposed to do, uh, there's there's plenty of leeway for the government. Yeah. Um, but going back to like the immediate responses and like what I what I had in mind for a long time that sort of struck me was the large scale display of just how many protesters were in Hong Kong back when the bill was initially proposed. And then you take that and then you try to extrapolate the sort of impact that the bill has. Um, so how, how impactful do you think all of that was on say voter turnout for the 2019 local elections? Sure, so the immediate, immediate impact of the law being introduced is that protests have essentially disappeared from Hong Kong. Now, to be fair, they had largely disappeared even before the law was enacted because of the coronavirus pandemic, um, but they were not certainly gone in the way that they are now. You would still see people go out on the streets, um, and even if they weren't on the streets, they would find other ways to express themselves. They would put posters up, you know, they would they would post things on social media. And that has really almost entirely disappeared from Hong Kong. There's really very, very little sign of outward resistance because people are scared. Um, and then as far as it relates to the elections for the Legislative Council that were just held here in Hong Kong. Um, so another byproduct of the law has been that it's been used to arrest many, many prominent pro-democracy figures here, including many of the opposition politicians. And so Hong Kong just held its first election for the local legislature since the law was enacted, but no pro-democracy candidates ran in it, either because they're in jail, they're in exile, or they have basically withdrawn from public life because of the security law. And so because there was no real opposition for any pro-democracy Hong Kong resident to vote for, uh, turnout was extremely low. It was the lowest that it's ever been here in Hong Kong during this past election. Yeah, and it it feels like a stark contrast to the local elections um, back in 2019, which just sort of makes me want to ask the question of, do you think the like the the local elections for 2019 were basically a way for the Chinese government to gauge whether or not they were willing to actually keep elections in Hong Kong democratic for larger scale elections like this one last month? That's an interesting question. I think that the consensus that has emerged around the 2019 elections, which as you said, were held at the height of the protests when public anger was really at its peak. The narrative that has really emerged around that is that Beijing and the Hong Kong government really even then seemed to underestimate public sentiment. And they really didn't expect to get walloped as thoroughly as they did in that election. And, 
And many people have now said that in retrospect, perhaps the government was so humiliated by that, that they really realized we cannot hold truly democratic elections anymore if we want to continue to maintain this veneer of legitimacy. Um, I think that that when they were holding it then, it wasn't necessarily, you know, a test. I think it was that they they really just didn't think that people would come out in the numbers that they did and hand them such a stunning defeat because in the past, uh, pro-Beijing figures had largely won those hyper-local elections because people didn't really care about them. And, and it was the protests that really turned them into a referendum on the government. Yeah. Um, so another change to the way that elections occur based on what we saw last month. And this is something that was mentioned in one of the articles that you did reporting for was the fact that candidates were vetted by national security, national security bodies if they wanted to actually run. So would you mind walking the audience through what this actually means in practice? Like what qualifications would be necessary for someone to run for office now compared to previous elections? Sure. So this is part of a big electoral overhaul that Beijing introduced in early 2021, just a few months after the national security law. You can think of it as sort of part two of a set of actions that Beijing was imposing on Hong Kong. And just as you said, this overhaul created a vetting committee to screen all candidates before they were allowed to run. But as far as actual qualifications, it's honestly pretty nebulous. The catchphrase that was repeated over and over again was that Beijing wants patriots administering Hong Kong. Now, as far as what it means to be a patriot, that, like the national security law, was left pretty vague. And so people would throw out random benchmarks, you know, they would say, well, you can't violate the national security law. You have to uphold one country, two systems. You have to recognize China's sovereignty over Hong Kong. Um, but other than that, you know, there, there's really, it was entirely arbitrary, one could say, what it meant to be a patriot. Um, because, you know, a lot of people in the pro-democracy camp would have said, I am a patriot. I love Hong Kong. I respect China's sovereignty over Hong Kong. I just, you know, I'm offering criticisms as a patriot. But obviously in Beijing's eyes, that might not have been enough. Um, and I think, you know, the best indicator of just how fuzzy this term was is that even pro-Beijing politicians who've been in office for a long time, they themselves would tell you in private and sometimes even in public, they would say, well, I don't really know what it means to be a patriot. And I'm not really sure if, if I pass this test. And, and so what you would see is the pro-Beijing camp sort of competing with each other to make increasingly nationalistic and sort of ridiculous comments, basically in an attempt to, to prove their patriotic credentials because no one really knew what, what the qualifications were. Yeah, um, and I guess another overhaul for um, the election last month is, is the simple fact that now voters can only elect 20 members of Hong Kong's Legislative yeah. Council. Yeah, and the other 70 are basically just not up to the voters to decide. Um, so it's pretty self-explanatory that that leaves the general populace fighting an uphill battle. But let's imagine like an overly optimistic hypothetical case where they do manage to successfully elect pro-democracy candidates in droves. Would that 
actually change anything? Like, would that actually make things better? Or would it simply motivate the Chinese government to find another excuse to like delegitimize voting in Hong Kong? Well, first of all, even if they were able to, even if the pro-democracy camp were to turn out in huge numbers and elect every candidate they wanted, as you said, it would still only be 20 out of 90 seats on the legislative council. So just numerically, it would be impossible for them to affect any sort of real change. Uh, but even, you know, in, in some basically entirely impossible scenario where they were able to put pro-democracy candidates in even some of those other seats and say, win a majority in the legislative council, which again, I want to emphasize is virtually entirely impossible. Uh, but if that were to happen, at the end of the day, the legislative council is still extremely limited in what it's able to do in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, the, the, the majority of governing authorities still rests with the chief executive. Um, for example, legislators are not even allowed to introduce their own bills, actually. They only vote on bills that are introduced by the chief executive and the rest of the Hong Kong government. And at the end of the day, the, the chief executive is still chosen by Beijing loyalists, still must be explicitly approved by the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. So even in, in this entirely impossible scenario in which there was a majority on the legislative council, th there's really not much that can be done because at the end of the day, even under one country, two systems, Beijing has final say over Hong Kong. Yeah, and I guess my next question is, what has the response of the international community been to last month's election? Because everything I've read and listened to has basically given me the impression that this has not really bolstered their standing in the international community at all. So why do you think the Chinese government is still going through the trouble of having you know, like, uh, like a quote unquote election in the first place? instead of just like outright, say, appointing people? Sure. So as you said, there has been a lot of condemnation from the international community of this election. People have called it a sham election. Um, and, and among many Hong Kongers, especially pro-democracy Hong Kongers as well, I think it's been a mixture of anger, frustration mixed with a collective shrug, I guess, because you know they, they just they know that this election does not represent them. Um, but as for the question of why bother holding them anyway, uh, you know, political scientists around the world who have studied authoritarian regimes have all talked about how these governments, you know, contrary to perhaps what you might think, really do care about at least the appearance of legitimacy. So that's why you know Russia still holds elections. That is why. In Beijing, they still have a legislature that nominally votes on proposals, even though they're almost all unanimously approved, because these authoritarian leaders still do care about being able to say that they have a mandate behind them, even if the entire world knows it not to be true. Now, as far as why, why they care about that and the psychology of that, you know, that's open to debate. But, but it is a trend that we've seen over and over around the world that these regimes still do care about at least being, point, being able to point to the gestures of democracy, even if everyone knows that they're hollow. So like if they just did away with the hollow nods to democracy and just did away with elections entirely, do you think that would have changed the response from the international community at all? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I actually, I, I do want to add one thing to my last response, which is that I think there is one extra factor playing into the specific way that things are happening here in Hong Kong, which is that international framework that I mentioned before, one country, two systems, in which China did explicitly promise a different way of life for Hong Kongers for 50 years. And I think that China is committed to at least being able to tell people that it's upholding that promise, uh, in part because Hong Kong is an extremely international global city. It is a very important global financial hub. And the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government still do really care about foreign businesses, for example, operating here. And so I think that in the name of preserving what has always made Hong Kong a very important global city, I think that it's extra important to them to, to maintain, uh, again, that veneer of legitimacy. Um, as far as whether the international response would have changed if they were just more honest about it, uh, you know, probably not. I think that it would have been an equal condemnation. I don't think that, you know, other governments would have said, okay, well, well we applaud you for being honest, so we're going to be less angry about what's happening. Um, but, you know, I do think that there is just sort of an, an added element of sort of disbelief, exasperation, frustration with with the lack of honesty. Yeah, it's all really frustrating. Um, so I guess by this point in time, when it comes to things like freedom of speech and freedom of expression, is there anything that still differentiates Hong Kong from the average Chinese city? Yes, yes. Um, I think that, that what people here in Hong Kong will say is that the things that made Hong Kong different from a mainland city are rapidly disappearing, but they, there are still elements and it would definitely be an exaggeration to say that Hong Kong is already just another mainland city. I think it's much more accurate to say that it is rapidly becoming much more like another mainland city. Um, so the most obvious example is that there is as of yet, no formal official firewall here in Hong Kong. So you can still access Facebook, you can still access Twitter and Google. There have been certain sites that have been blocked by the Hong Kong police citing national security. Um, the police have also forced people to scrub their web presences and there has been a lot of self-censorship out of fear as I mentioned. But on paper, there is no need to use a VPN to access those sort of Western social media and sites and search engines. Um, Likewise, you know, there are newspapers that will still publish um, dissenting views, critical views, um, even on social media, you will still see people occasionally expressing criticisms of the government, although again, it is less and less frequent. And I think that is something that you, you see much more rarely in, in China, especially on sort of formal media platforms. But again, what I mentioned about transformation, those platforms are rapidly disappearing. In the past week alone, we've seen two pro-democracy news sites shut down and the ones that still remain, I think are going to be much more careful about what they publish. And certainly legacy media outlets here in Hong Kong um, have been much more careful about the types of views that they publish. So there are certainly still differences, but they are disappearing by the day. And like, do you think those differences are going to keep disappearing like within say the next year? You know, it's really hard to predict, but I think if you were to just make a list of everything that has disappeared in the past 18 months since the national security law was imposed, it's 
pretty staggering. It's dozens of civil society groups and NGOs. It is newspapers, as I said, it is labor unions. Um, and, and so if, if things continue at this speed, uh, certainly I think just within a few years, Hong Kong will be, well, it's already pretty unrecognizable from what it was just a few years ago, but I think even more so. Yeah, so I guess on that um, pretty somber note, I'm just gonna say again, once again, Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. I guess I, I guess I have one last question just as an epilogue. Um, so on Twitter, you mentioned that um, you, you're able to detect all free food within a five mile <laughs> radius. Um, so I, I'm interested in understanding your superpower for that um, because as a college student, I think it would be extremely beneficial for me to have that superpower as well. So <laughs> would you mind sharing your wisdom with me in the crowd? It was a power that I really honed as a college student. And um, in college, I just joined a bunch of Facebook groups and always kept an eye out for whenever, you know, random groups like like the ballroom dancing club and other groups said that they were hosting an event and all were welcome and there would be snacks. I, I clearly remember dragging some of my roommates to a ballroom dancing event, even though we had never, ever done anything approaching ballroom dancing and we scavenged there. So, so just keep your eyes peeled on social media. All right. I'll remember to keep my eyes peeled. Once again, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you.